tonight. Here's the question. What is your greatest treasure? What's your greatest treasure? You know, to treasure something means that it has, uh, of some, it means the thing that you treasure is uh, of great worth or value to you. All right? What are the things in life that are of great worth or value to you? One man's trash is another man's treasure. You've heard that phrase, which basically means, you know, we don't all treasure the same things equally. You can tell what a person treasures by looking at how they spend their time or their money. Another way to identify what a person uh, treasures is by looking at the things that they talk about or things that they think about often. Maybe things that you discuss with your family or your friends. If I were to ask your family, if I were going to ask your friends, if I were going to ask maybe your children, parents, what it is that you value most, how would they respond? What would they see in your life that is of great worth to you? What brings you joy? What brings you satisfaction? What brings fulfillment in your life? These, the answers to these questions reveal your greatest treasure the things that are of great worth and of great value to you. And so for the last several weeks, we have been looking at the attributes of God. And it, this series is called The Father Is, and we're looking at attributes that describe our Heavenly Father. We've looked at the Father is good, the Father is love, the Father is sufficient, the Father is faithful. And today, we're looking at the Father is worthy. The Father is worthy. What does it mean that the Father is worthy? Psalm 145.3 says this, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. God is worthy. Revelation 4.11 says this, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. God is worthy. Now, our English word worthy is defined as giving uh, attention to or deserving of attention or deserving of respect. And the God of the universe, the creator of all things in heaven and earth, certainly deserves our attention, certainly deserves our respect. But the specific word in Revelation 4.11, the word for worthy there in that passage is a term of measurement. Or even more specifically, it's a term uh, 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 that speaks to the measurement of weight. It's really best described by an image, and it's the image of an old set of scales. Do you remember these scales? It's kind of scales where you had two plates uh, on each side of a balance, and you uh, use these scales to measure the weights of something by balancing one object of an unknown weight with another object of a known weight. These were the scales that were used in ancient times, and uh, they weren't just used to measure the weight of an object, but they were also used to measure the value of an object. For instance, in the process of trading, merchants would use scales because they needed a way to assess the value of the goods that they were trading. For instance, maybe a, a nugget of gold. And so they needed to make sure that they were getting what it was worth. And so they would use these scales to measure the value and the worth of these various objects that were coming through. And so in Revelation 4... By using the word worthy, the apostle John, who's the one who wrote the book of Revelation, places God on one side of the scales. And on the other side of the scales, he places glory and honor and power. And John is saying that God is the only person in the universe that is valuable enough or worthy enough to receive glory and honor and power. So our Heavenly Father 
Our Heavenly Father is worthy. He is infinitely more valuable and of greater worth than anything in the universe. Simply put, God is the greatest treasure in the universe. Now, this may seem, ob- seem obvious to you, right? You may simply agree and say, yeah, of course, Kevin. Uh, uh, I would agree with that. God is the greatest treasure in the universe. But the question I want to reflect on this morning, the question I want to pose to you and to me is this. Is God your greatest treasure? Is he your greatest treasure? Is there anything in your life that is of greater worth or more valuable to you than God? And so today's message is going to feel a little bit like a checkup, kind of a going to the doctor and get a, you know, your yearly physical exam. We're going to do a little evaluation of our hearts this morning. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If we could put God on uh, this side of the scale, is there anything in your heart that you treasure more than God? Is there anything in your heart that is of greater worth or more valuable to you than God? My question to us this morning is, is God your greatest treasure? Is he my greatest treasure? Now, in order for us to answer that question, we need to know what it looks like for God to be our greatest treasure. We need a standard by which to evaluate ourselves against Or better yet, who is our standard? And of course, that's Jesus. Jesus is our model for life. And Jesus models what having God as our greatest treasure looks like. He treasured his heavenly father more than anything else. There was nothing in all of creation that was of greater worth or more value to Jesus than his heavenly father. And so today we're just going to take a brief walk through his life. And we're going to look at several statements that Jesus makes. And each of these statements we're going to look at are going to give us a little insight into the, to the greatest treasure of his heart. And by doing so, I hope that we can evaluate our own lives and our own hearts in light of Jesus as the model. And here's my challenge for you this morning. It's difficult but yet simple. The challenge is this. Allow nothing in your life to be of greater worth or more valuable to you than God. Allow nothing in your life to be of greater worth or more valuable to you than God. Would you pray with me? I'd love to pray before we open up the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this morning. Thank you for um, what you're doing in the life of Genesis Church. I trust, Father, that you have had uh, everybody here in this room this morning uh, is here for a reason. And I trust that you have something to say to each one of us. Lord, would you speak to us? Would you open the hearts and minds, uh, open our hearts and minds, Lord, so that we could hear your voice? God, would you use some of these scriptures and some of the thoughts that I've uh, I've put together to to speak to our hearts, encourage us, to challenge us, to minister to us? Lord, we want to hear your voice today. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so if you want to follow along, you can open up your Bible to the book of John. We're going to flip through several passages in the book of John. We're going to start in John chapter 2. And this is early in Jesus' ministry. And he goes up to Jerusalem for the first Passover after his ministry begins. And he gets up there and he finds some people selling cattle and sheep and doves and exchanging money in the temple courts. You remember this? Jesus uh, gets really upset at this. I mean, this sets him off. And so he makes a whip out of leather strands and drives everyone out. Can you imagine this scene? And we only have one quote from Jesus in this intense scene. It's found in John chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. It says this. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Verse 17. His disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. 
Jesus is obviously upset about what's taking place. And he's not just upset, though. Like he's overcome with emotion. And it's the kind of emotion that, that moves him to take an unexpected and really a startling step of action. I mean, could you imagine this making the news today? If a protester causes a scene at a political rally by holding up a sign and loudly shouting a few statements, it makes the news today. Can you imagine how we would respond to Jesus doing this? Why does he do this? Well, there's lots of reasons why, but the simple, most basic explanation is this, is that his father was his consuming passion. For Jesus... His father was his consuming passion. He cared more about his father than anything else. The writer John makes the note uh, here that it was written about Jesus. Zeal for your house will consume me. That's a quote from a messianic psalm in Psalm 69. Psalm 69 verse 8 and 9 speaks about Jesus. Here's what it says. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Can you imagine a young Jesus saying this? Maybe a teenage Jesus, maybe a Jesus who holds on to this passage throughout his young adult years, and there he is. He shows up at the temple courts. He sees what's happening. He drives everyone out, and the disciples say, Oh, yeah, Psalm 69, zeal for his father's house consumed him. Point number one today is this. The father is worthy of your consuming passion. See, Jesus wasn't passionate about the building itself. The building held the Holy of Holies, which is where God's presence dwelt. And, and people wanted to go there to meet with God. And so Jesus wasn't passionate about the building. He was passionate about God. Jesus had a consuming passion for his heavenly Father. What is your consuming passion? What consumes you? What, what do you get excited about in life? Maybe it's work. Maybe you get passionate about work. Or maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's exercise, or maybe it's sports. Maybe it's the Colts or the Pacers. Maybe it's movies or music. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's Pokemon Go. Okay, we're going to have a talk right now. Let's just raise your hand if you played Pokemon Go this week. All right, come up here. I'm going to pray for you right now. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> kind of. What is your consuming? What is your consuming passion? What do you get excited about? Maybe it's your family, right? Maybe it's your friends. Maybe it's spending time with friends. You love to spend time with friends. Maybe it's going on vacations. Maybe it's exploring. If we were able to take one or two of your greatest passions in life, the things you get excited about, and we were able to place them on a scale and weigh them against your passion for God, which would weigh more? Which would be of greater worth or value in your heart. King David, King David had a consuming passion for God. And in Psalm 27, David says this, one thing I ask for the Lord, this only do I seek. He's saying, this is my consuming passion. This is the one passion that consumes my life, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. What's he talking about? His consuming passion is God. And verse eight says, my heart says, uh, do we have John 27.8? 27.8 says this. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. David was passionately consumed with seeking the face of God. What is the one thing that we should seek? 
one thing we should get excited about in our life as Christians? What's the one consuming passion we should have? It should be God. Our heart's cry should be, seek his face. Now, I'm not saying God should be our only passion or that it's wrong to have other interests or passions or things to get you excited about. But all of our other passions, everything we get excited about should ultimately feed into and in some way be leveraged toward our passion for God. Because when we place all of our other passions on one side of the scale, none of them compare to the worth and the value of God. So ask yourself, how can I leverage the things in my life that I'm passionate about toward my passion for God? And don't allow, don't allow the things you're passionate about in life to be a greater worth or value to you than your passion for God. Let's move on. Next statement of Jesus we're going to look at is in John chapter 5. Again, Jesus has traveled up to Jerusalem, and Jesus heals a paralyzed man while he's up in Jerusalem. But he does it on the Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees confront Jesus for healing on the Sabbath because that was a no-no. And in response, Jesus basically says, listen, my heavenly father is the one who is working on the Sabbath. I'm only doing what he's doing. Jesus is saying, listen, I healed this man because God told me to heal the man, heal this man. I only do what I see my father doing. And here's what he goes on to say in verse 19. Here's a statement that I want us to look at. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. I want you to imagine with me uh, a young guy in his 30s. Okay? I want you to pick a real person. Maybe it's somebody you know. Uh, maybe it's a brother or a friend. Uh, I'm in my late 30s, but you want to you imagine me? Imagine me. All right? So you mention, imagine a guy in his late 30s. I mean, in his 30s. Imagine you hear this 30-year-old friend say to you, uh, here's what he says. He says, I can't do anything by myself. You know, I can only do what I see my dad doing. Whatever my dad does, that's what I do. You hear your friend, you hear your brother, you hear this 30-year-old guy say that. What's going to come to your mind? What are you going to think? You're going to think, this guy needs to get a grip. He needs to get a life. He needs to grow up. He needs to move on. He needs to be his own man, right? Because if someone says, I, I can't do anything by myself, I can only do what I, I see my dad doing, well, that's, that's unhealthy, That's why this statement by Jesus always amazes me. Because in this one statement, Jesus reveals that he is totally dependent on his heavenly father. That he lives in dependence on his father. Now, Jesus has a will of his own. He is his own man. But he realizes in his humanity that he must must stay connected to and dependent on his father as his source of life. So he willingly chooses, willingly chooses to submit his life to his father. Now, this is a challenging idea for many of us to wrap our minds around because our broken world today and our broken relationships and uh, we're we're filled with broken people. Many of us, we don't, to be honest with you, we don't want to be like our fathers. We don't blaze our own trail. We don't go our own way. We love our independence. We seek independence. Jesus never sought, never sought a separate autonomous life. He never lived independently of his father. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, says this, Jesus was the most dependent human being who ever lived. Now, that's true. That's significant for our lives. See, there's something in us that doesn't want to depend on or rely on anyone for anything. But the reality is, is that we are all, by, by nature, very needy people. We're all needy. We don't like to acknowledge our need or our helplessness because we value our independence. Our American John Wayne mentality is of great worth to us. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. 
This is stronger in, this, this desire is stronger in some of us than others. But regardless of how much you struggle with this, don't allow independence to be of greater worth or value to you than depending on God. The Father is worthy. Here's the next point. The Father is worthy of your desperate dependence. The Father is worthy of your desperate dependence. Is there anything in your life right now you've been stubbornly dealing with on your own instead of going to God? You need to go to Him and you need to acknowledge your need, confess your helplessness, and depend on Him. Do you need to come to your Father this morning and say like Jesus, Father, I can't do this by myself. I need your help. Is there a decision that you've been trying to make on your own instead of seeking wisdom from God? Is there a wound in your heart that you've been nursing all on your own? Bring your need to God. Admit your helplessness to handle it on your own and depend on your heavenly Father. First, five, first Peter 5, 7 says this, cast all your anxiety, cast all your cares onto him because he cares for you. Last fall, I was uh, spending some time alone in prayer one morning, and I was telling God that I wanted the kind of relationship with him that he, he, he wanted with me. I, I, I just said, Father, I, I want to relate to you the way you long to relate to me. I want the kind of relationship that you want. And so I posed the question to him, okay, so that's what I want. Where do I start? And about that time, my middle child, my daughter Zoe, woke up. And started crying, and my wife and the other kids were still asleep. And so I hurried in to get Zoe and bring her out uh, with me. And as I was carrying her and holding her close, with her laying her head on my shoulder, uh, I, heard my, I heard my father's voice. And I don't hear it this clearly all the time, but I did that morning. And as I'm carrying Zoe, holding her, caring for her, I heard the Heavenly Father say, Let me take care of you. Let me take care of you, Kevin. Where do you start? What's the first step of relating to God the way he longs for us to relate to him? By coming to him like a child and allowing him to take care of us. In the New Testament, God is referred to as a father who takes care of his children, as a shepherd who takes care of his sheep, as a gardener who tends and takes care of his garden. God longs to take care of you and me. And maybe this morning you need to make the decision to stop trying to do life on your own, to call out and cry out to God for help. He is worthy of your desperate dependence. Jesus modeled a life of dependence for us. And there was a reason. There's a reason why he was so dependent on his father, because he wasn't really even living for his own agenda. Let's look at another statement that Jesus makes in John 5.30. He says this, By myself I can do nothing. There it is again. He says it again. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. My judgment is just. Just for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. That's what I want to draw your attention to. He says, I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Again, he says he did nothing on his own. And we see in this last phrase that the motivation of his life was to please his heavenly father. The word for seek here is one of my favorite words uh, in the New Testament. It's the word zeteo. And uh, he says, I zeteo not to please myself, but him who sent me. The word zeteo means to strive after or to aim at. To strive after or to aim at. What are you striving after? What's the aim of your life? If we could take a scope and put it on your heart and look through it, what would be your aim? What's your heart aimed at? What's the target or the bullseye of your life? Are you striving to accomplish your own plans or your own agenda? 
If you put a scope on Jesus' heart and you looked through it, you'd see that his life was aimed right at his father. He sought to please his father, to accomplish his father's purposes and his father's will. He says in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus was seeking his father's will and his father's agenda. He didn't come with his cleverly, his own cleverly devised plans. He understood, Jesus understood that his life was part of a much bigger picture, was part of a much bigger plan and a much larger agenda. And the same is true for you and I. Your life and mine are part of a much grander plan. Our heavenly father has an agenda for our lives and it's a good agenda. He's working all things together for his purposes and his plans and ultimately for our good. And our, his plans will bring him glory. Whose agenda are you living for? Maybe it's your career plans or your family plans or your financial plans. Don't allow your plans or your agendas to be of greater worth and value to you than God's. I think most of us want to do God's will. We're trying to discern what our Father wants for our lives, right? I, I'd say most of us want that. We're doing the best we can to honor him. That'd be true of me. I'm trying, I'm trying my best, but I often find myself with a divided agenda. I often find myself with a divided heart. I want my way, but I want God's way too. I want to accomplish God's plan, but I want to accomplish my plans too. I think most of the time I walk through life hoping that God's agenda and my agenda will merge together somehow. <laughs> my plans are of great worth and value to me. What about yours? What I need to be reminded, what I need to be reminded of this morning, and maybe you do too, is this. That the Father is worthy of your undivided agenda. The Father is worthy of your undivided agenda. I have a vision for my life. I have plans for my wife and I and our children. I have an agenda for what I want to accomplish in ministry. But when I place my plans and my agenda on the scales, they are of little value and worth compared to God's plans. The Father is worthy of your and I's undivided agenda. Trade your plans for his plans. Seek to do his will and not your own. Let's look back at Jesus and another statement he makes. At one point in his ministry, Jesus is again in the temple courts up in Jerusalem, and he's teaching this time. And once again, some people confront him, and he gets into this lengthy exchange with them, and it gets a little bit ugly. And they accuse Jesus of being possessed by a demon. In fact, they basically call him a Samaritan devil is what one translation says. It's like the perfect double insult. You call a Jew a Samaritan and a devil. It was so rude and so insulting and such a dishonoring thing to say to anyone, much less Jesus. Now, that's not the point of what I want to highlight. What I want to draw your attention to is something Jesus says in response to them. Look at John chapter 8, verse 49 and 50. He says, I am not possessed by a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am seeking no glory for myself. See, in this moment, they are insulting Jesus and they're tearing him down. And instead of Jesus defending himself and, and, and pointing out to them all of the reasons why they're wrong and why he deserved their honor, he humbles himself and he exalts his father. See, for Jesus, bringing glory to his father, bringing attention and honor and praise to his father was of greater worth and more value than bringing glory to himself. And a few verses later, Jesus go far, goes so far to say, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. And a few chapters later, in John 12, Jesus prays a, prays a simple but powerful prayer. It's John 12. Here it is. Father, glorify your name. 
His father responded to him. I've glorified it, and I'll glorify it again. But look at that prayer. Father, glorify your name. This was Jesus' prayer, and it should be ours as well. We would do well to follow the model of Jesus and pray this prayer for our own lives, to pray this prayer for our children, for our loved ones and friends, that God would glorify his name in their life. For me, the emphasis is on glorify your name because I often fight against the temptation to bring attention to my name, to bring honor to my name. If I do anything of value, I mean like take out the trash. Husbands, anybody, anybody relate to this? If I take out the trash, I want my wife to notice. I want a little bit of credit. <laughs> She's like, Kevin, come on, seriously? If I do the dishes, I want my wife to notice. I want some credit. If I come up with an idea at work and my idea is taken and put into uh, implemented in ministry here at Genesis, I want some attention for that. I want to be recognized. I want some honor. But if I were to put all of my valuable efforts on the scale, they aren't aren't worthy or valuable at all to God. The Bible says our righteous acts are like filthy rags when compared to the righteousness of God. It's true of me. It's true of you too. So what do we do? Well, we give God all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. This is the next point. The Father is worthy of your glorious praise. The Father is worthy of your glorious praise. Listen, regardless of what's going on in your life this morning, and I know that some of you are really struggling. Some of you are hurting. Some of you are confused and you feel a bit disoriented in this season of life. I want to encourage you to give God your praise. My wife and I have entered a season where we've got some own pain and struggle in our life. And Paige recently said to me, and I thought it was so good. She says, you know, in the midst of painful or difficult circumstances, when we praise God, it is a spiritual declaration to stand up and testify that God is worthy in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow. He's worthy of our praise, even in the midst of our pain. He's worthy of your praise. Psalm 6930 says this, I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. Maybe this morning you need to be reminded to give God praise, to sing to him, to give him thanks for who he is and all that he's done for you. He is worthy of your praise. And your heavenly father is also worthy of your loving obedience, your loving obedience. By now, you've probably heard us use the phrase here at Genesis that obedience is God's love language. That phrase is a quote from author Dan Spader who wrote a Bible study called Walking as Jesus Walk. It's a tremendous study. I encourage you to pick it up sometime. It's a great study on the life of Jesus. And, and Spader points out in it that even a surface-level study of Jesus' life will reveal his loving obedience to his Father. And in John 12, once again, some people are confronting Jesus. He battled this his whole ministry. And this time, because of what he was teaching, they're confronting him. And in response, Jesus says to them again, check out this statement, John 12, 49 to 50. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I've spoken. I know this command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Jesus only taught what the Father commanded him to teach. And a little bit later in John 14, 31, Jesus says this. Uh, He comes, he's talking about Satan. Satan comes that the world may learn, and here's, here's the key phrase, that I love the Father, I love the Father, I love my Heavenly Father, Jesus says, and I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. See, Jesus so loved and treasured his father that he expressed his love through obedience. 
And we should too. If God's calling you to a step of obedience, you need to take it. You need to walk in obedience to your heavenly Father. He is worthy of your loving obedience. Jesus walked in obedience all the way to the cross. You know, we'll often say Jesus died on the cross for us, for you and me. That's true. He did. But it wasn't the primary reason why Jesus died on the cross. It wasn't the first reason why he went to the cross. The first reason why he went to the cross was because of his obedience to his father. Because it was in the garden where he said, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, but not my will, your will be done. It was in obedience and out of obedience, out of love for his father, in obedience, he went to the cross and gave his life because that's what his father's agenda and plan was for his life. And he gave his life, Jesus gave his whole life, and he died so that you and I could have life, have eternal life, abundant life. And in Luke 23, we have the very statement, Jesus, uh, the very last statement Jesus ever made before he died. You remember the last words Jesus ever uttered before he died? This was your Savior. This is your Maya's. Our, our Lord and our Savior, the last words, here's what he says. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The last words on his mouth, out of his mouth, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit. Father, my life is yours. And for Jesus, his heavenly Father was of such great worth and great value that he's willing to give up his whole life for his Father. And yet again, the same is true for you and for me. The Father is worthy of your whole life. God's worthy of our whole life. He's worthy of your consuming passions. He's worthy of your desperate dependence. He's worthy of your undivided agenda. He's worthy of your glorious praise. He's worthy of your loving obedience. God is worthy of your whole life and of my whole life. God is the greatest treasure in all of creation. But the question is, is he the greatest treasure in your life? And so I leave you with this simple yet profoundly difficult challenge. Allow nothing in your life to be of greater worth or more valuable to you than God. Our Father is worthy. This is what Jesus modeled for us. This is why we worship Jesus. We're going to move into a time of communion. And Cameron and the band are going to come out and play some music.